0: If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at infodenverchurch.org. At to get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching.
1: Genesis chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust, or the clay, or the dirt of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, in Genesis, it's pretty interesting We basically have two creation stories, Genesis 1 and the second in Genesis 2. Now, when it comes to stories, I'm assuming all of us are really familiar with stories, how to tell them, when we tell them. I mean, if you're anything like me, you've had moments where you're visiting with old friends or you're seeing family, and it's been the first time you're together in years. And typically when that happens, you spend some time catching up and you begin telling them about what's going on with life and you update them on your friends, your work, where you're living, the whole thing. And then at some point when you're together, you begin telling old stories. How many of you have experienced this? Stories you've all heard before. You're telling each other stories that you experienced together. Like if you were with my family and we hadn't seen each other in a while, you'd probably hear a story about the time my dad tried to bury my sister's horse. Now some of you are like, your sister, you had horses growing up? Yes, I actually worked for three years on a ranch, boots and spurs and chaps and the whole nine, bear buck and Broncos. Some of you are like, that's not what I've associated you with ever. Uh, Kevin Costner maybe, not you. But yes, I grew up with horses, and my sister's horse died. I went out to feed the horses one night, and it was dead and bloated. And my sister was gone. She was about 14 at the time, and my dad said, we have to get the horse buried as soon as possible. So the next morning, he goes to our neighbor about a half mile down the road, and he brings the backhoe back, and he parks it up against some trees and begins digging this massive hole, because if you don't know, you need to dig a very large hole for horses, I meanwhile am dragging the body of the horse over to the hole. Now, the only way we could figure out how to do this was to hook it up to our Sears Craftsman lawnmower and I put it into fifth gear and I would pop the clutch and we had a chain tied to the horse and the tractor. And when I'd pop the clutch, I'd go about six feet and then I'd go boom and I'd move the horse's carcass about six inches to 12 inches, depending. So I finally get it over the hole while my dad is digging, but here is the problem. There's the hole, there's the backhoe, and my dad backed it into a corner with trees on either side, and now he can't move the backhoe out. (laughs) Meanwhile, when I drug the horse over, I did it with the legs pointing toward the backhoe, and now the horse is rigor mortis. So my dad takes the backhoe arm. He's not very good with backhoes. And instead of, like, just kind of gently sweeping the horse in, he's, like, attacking the horse, (laughs) which was disgusting to watch. (laughs) Then he finally gets around the horse, and he pulls it into the hole, and now the horse is standing upright, (laughs) leaning against the wall of the hole, and my dad is sitting there, and I can just see what's happening in his head. And he looks at me and says, never tell your sister. And then he takes the backhoe and kind of bends it underneath and raises it up and just goes, wham! And he beats the horse, not really buries the horse. My sister shows up (laughs) the next day, and she's like, where's my horse? And I was like, oh, have I got it? My dad just hits me, you know? (laughs) I'm so sorry he died. You know, I'm like you. Die, you don't even know the half it. She didn't find out that story for like six years. Now it's like this operative story in our family. We all have these stories, right? That are just a little disturbing. It said, "Why do we tell those stories?" We all wonder, we all wonder that. Yes. <laughs> that was the. That was like the PG version. Just so you know, it, it was way worse. It involved the 22 and all sorts of things. Nonetheless, we we tell, humans are storytelling creatures because stories are how we make meaning of the world. I have a friend who says we don't dream in equations, we dream in stories. Stories are how we make meaning of the world, and this is nothing new. Human beings have done this since the dawn of time, whether it's civilizations, or cities, or nations, or clans, or tribes. They are telling stories, and they do so to lend meaning. They do so to orient us to the world in which we live. Joseph Campbell speaks about these stories that many call myths, and he points out, myths are not lies myths are stories that are less about what's factually true and more about what's always true. And they serve to orient us to what he would call the mysterium tremendum, the mystery, the life, the energy, however you want to say it, God's presence in this world. And it's an introduction to God for us to say yes to this and also to be in awe of it. These myths, these stories, what they do is they orient us to the cosmos and the order of the cosmos and the way things are structured as a way of telling us this is how we ought to orient and structure our lives. Live in concert with the cosmos. Don't oppose it. It will not go well for you. It it orients us to this moral order that exists in the world And typically, every culture believes that their brand of morality is often the highest and best brand of morality over and above others, and it also serves to help you understand the arc of your life, who you are, why why you're here, and where you're going. And these stories, by the way, were all over the place in the ancient world. We have two of them here in what we call the Bible, our sacred text, in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now, the region of the world, which is now, many believe, uh, modern-day Iran and Iraq, that's where these stories began to first be told. And many of these stories that were told were actually stories that were older than Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And they were told in a region of the world that historians refer to as the Levant. And if you hear some of these old stories... There's actually a lot of similarities with the stories that we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but there's a few key differences. One of the stories that comes out of the Levant or out of the ancient uh, Near Eastern world is one called the Enuma Elish. Many of you have probably heard of this story. And it begins with a creation story that's very similar to the one that's found in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the story goes something like this. There was a goddess named Tiamat, who was this like, serpentine creature who represented chaos, and she couldn't be conquered. And the god Marduk said, if I'm able to kill her, install me as the chief of all of the gods. And they agreed. So Marduk goes and he slays Tiamat. And as if it's not enough to just kill her, it says he then saws her carcass in half, and he creates the earth from one part of her carcass, and he creates the heavens from the others. So in other words, the entire universe exists between the slain carcass of a goddess. Then he decides he wants to make humans to carry on the work that he doesn't really want to do. And so in consultation with his father, Ea, Ea says to him, don't make humans just from clay. And by the way, there's a lot of myths out there about the gods forming humans from clay. He says, don't make the humans just from clay. Make them from blood and clay. And so Marduk then goes back out, and he finds Kingu. Kingu was the co-conspirator with Tiamat, and he slays Kingu and drains Kingu's blood out onto the earth, which is the carcass of Tiamat, and mixture, mixes the blood and the clay together, and that's how humans are created. So, to be clear, the earth on which we live is the carcass of a slain goddess, and we are a cocktail of the blood of a slain god that came through some sort of revenge and a carcass. Like, how does that sound? That'd be a great Christian bumper sticker, wouldn't it? (laughs) I'm just kidding. There's no such thing as great Christian bumper stickers. (laughs) But if these stories are meant to orient you to the gods, to the cosmic order, to some sort of moral order here on earth and to yourself, what does that story begin to tell you about the gods? Well, they're violent. They will take revenge. You are here to work for them, to do their bidding. And you better, because we know what happens if you don't, what does it tell you about the cosmic order of things? Well, that violence in power, that's, that's what makes things happen. And if you're supposed to align your society according to the cosmic order, then what does that tell you about the society and the worlds in which you live? Well, that you have enemies, that revenge is okay, and actually we're children born of revenge, so kind of makes sense. What does it tell you about your arc of your life? You are here to placate the gods. In other words, don't upset the gods because they're already not very happy. I mean, this is a picture of a violent universe that is born of separation, that is born of enmity, that's born of war. And that kind of narrative, that kind of story, because stories make meaning in our life, does something to us. Now there was a lot of stories like that, not just from the Levant, but from Egypt and from uh, ancient Greece and all over the place. But contrast that with the stories we have in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter one begins like a lot of these epics and myths do. It's a Hebrew poem that begins talking about chaos. It says the earth was formless and void, or we could say wild in waste, and it's watery substance. This is all very ancient symbolism, metaphor, imagery. But God doesn't fight it. God speaks to it. And what's really fascinating is that in the Hebrew, when it says God says, the tense of that Hebrew verb is not an imperative. It's not God commanding saying, there needs to be light, and then there's light. There needs to be, no, it's actually, the tense in the Hebrew is an expression of desire. It's an expression of a wish. So maybe we could hear it something like, I'd really like for there to be light. And then there's light. I'd really like for there to be an expanse between the lower firmament and the upper firmament. And then there was an expanse. You know what I'd really like to do? I'd like to make human beings of all shapes and sizes and orientations and colors and ethnicities because I want them to look like us. And all of a sudden, there's human beings that look like God. You see, what we see is this invitation not a command, not a battle, not a war. Like what it begins to tell us is that the universe, the cosmos, is an expression of God's desire. It's an expression of God's longing. And then we hear about how he forms and fashions and shapes human beings, not with blood, just dirt, just the ground, as a way of reminding us you are forever connected to this place. You come from it. In Genesis 2, the first command given to the human beings is, hey, work the ground, cultivate it, and care for it. The word for work there is the same word that's translated worship, the same word that's used to describe the priest's work in the temple. It's something we do to reflect who we are and whose we are. That God's not saying, you better do what I'm telling you to do. God's going, I want you to work in the same way I've worked I want you to put your hands in the dirt just like I put my hands in the dirt, in the dirt when I created you. Now if this again of these stories tell us something about the cosmos and the universe and how we are to orient ourselves to it, what does it tell us about God? Not that this God needs to be placated but that this God's inviting and longing and this whole thing is an expression of God's heart. What does it tell us about us? That we're invited to co-create with God, that we're all image bearers. It's not just reserved for a few in high places. This is all of us together doing this thing. It tells us that we're all somehow connected, that the arc of my life already has purpose from the very start. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to placate any God out there because we live in a benevolent universe that's deeply rooted and connected and intertwined with itself. Now, if I were to stand up here this morning and say, which of you believe in the Enuma Elisha as the operating narrative for the universe? I assume in a context like this, you'd be like, hmm, not me. You'd be like, I'm a, you know, I'm a Genesis 2 kind of person, right? Because, well, that's the answer we're supposed to give. And that's all well and good, but let's think about how Christians have traditionally described ourselves and God and the cosmos and the universe and others. How many of you have a friend who, like, bad fortune befalls them, and there's something in their head, like, well, it's just God punishing me for fill in the blank? Have we heard this before? Yeah. You did something that upset God, so God's like, well, I'm going to punish you. Or, like, I've had so many people over the years here at DCC that they come in here, and they kind of look a little sheepish, and I'm like, hey, how you doing? Good. Good. I introduced myself, that's my first time here. I'm just kind of afraid God's going to strike me dead for going into a church. Like, oh, an Enuma Elish person, are you? (laughs) Like, how much do we live really with this idea that we need to placate the angry gods? That's not the story in Genesis chapter two, and the stories that we tell matter. How about, like, enemies? Now, I know that that's a military term, but let me just do a couple of, like, word associations, and you tell me if you know what I'm talking about with enemies. Um, Republican-Democrat. Okay, let's try another one. Um, CNN-Fox. I love how quiet it's getting in here. (laughs) And by the way, when it gets tense and you crack a joke that's not that funny and people laugh, it means, yes, it actually is tense. Let's keep going with this one, though. Oh, progressive-conservative. You see, maybe we might not be firing bullets at each other anymore, but my God, just get on Twitter. Actually, no, don't. <laughs> don't get on Twitter. You will need to take a bath when you're done. What about like our connection to the earth? I mean, we've just abused this thing for centuries, and look what's happening. And there's still cynicism about it. Like we're having all this crazy weather, and people are like, <laughs> global warming. I'm like, no, it's called climate change, and part of the anyway because we've just become a disposable society where we can just keep throwing things away and consuming and believe that there's no real consequences we've forgotten where we come from You see, I listen to a lot of Christian theology and I think to myself, maybe the problem is is that a lot of the theology, at least that I've been exposed to, doesn't start in Genesis 1 and 2, it starts in Genesis chapter 3. And if you're not familiar with the order of things, there is the creation poem in Genesis 1, there's the second story about God forming human beings in Genesis chapter 2, and it finishes with, and they were naked without shame. Everything is this expression of God's longing. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we have what's called the fall or sin enters the world, And then everything experiences separation and enmity and division. And then God says to the human beings, you're out of the garden. And somehow it's like we start our story there. Like we're all separate and we're all like, no, 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 no. The story doesn't begin there. That's not the foundational reality. The foundational reality is something very different. I mean, think about the salvation story or gospel story many of you grew up hearing. Like, God is angry with you, I heard. God can't even stand to be in the same room as you. I'm like, well, I know a lot of people who would say that. (laughs) And so somehow there's this transaction that happens, and now we're able to be like, okay, God's close, but still be careful because there's a lot of people this is not going to happen for. And then what's like the apex of the story, the conclusion of the story? And if you believe this, you get out of here and go off and live in a disembodied existence in some eternal bliss somewhere else. Wow, so our story from the beginning to the end is one of separation and disconnection and placating the gods. This is fascinating. This sounds a lot like very primitive religion who had very different stories when it comes to how they think about the universe. The problem is it's not the story the sacred text tells. It's not even the story the universe tells. Scientists roundly agree today that within three minutes, three minutes of the universe bursting into existence that particles of like substance in essence began bonding with each other. And it didn't stop there because those bonds eventually created atoms. And those atoms began bonding with each other and they created molecules. And those molecules began bonding and they began to form proteins What's really fascinating is a biological team out of Cornell University recently argued, and they still maintain, that those proteins actually found their way into clay, and the clay was the fertile soil for proteins to grow into DNA and eventually living cells. And these primitive stories are like, I don't know, I think we came from clay. Sometimes, like, the Bible's weird. Can we just acknowledge that? It's bizarre, and sometimes it's, like, backward, and you're like, I can't believe we're still reading this thing. And then other times, you're like, this thing's way ahead of its time. It has, like, some incipient wisdom that it offers all of us that maybe we should keep paying attention to it. Anyway, you have cells, and then what do cells come together, and what do they do? They bond, and then they form human beings. It just keeps going and going and going. And somehow, as we human beings develop consciousness, We begin telling stories that actually go against the direction of the universe. How's that going for us? Maybe this is why things like racism are so, so insidious. Because it's human beings not only being separate, but believing they're superior over another human being who in fact is just like them. And they're saying no, not only to the direction of the universe and the order of the cosmos, but to the heart and longing of God. Uh, just the other day I was speaking with someone and uh, I was going to the airport and he was my Lyft driver and we're talking and he starts asking me about how much I travel and I'm like I travel you know a fair bit and where have you traveled so we start talking and I told him I went to Cuba this summer he said why'd you go to Cuba I said my dad's from there and he immigrated in 1960 and he said oh I'm an immigrant too I came from Pakistan and I said oh that's great and then he laughed he said aren't we all really just immigrants And I thought, this is someone who seems to understand something, not like just a connection between us, but also this reality, like we're all in some ways the same, no matter what labels we want to put over everything. I mean, there's this idea of like, why is it that it's so tragic when you see something in the ground, when you see something happening to wildlife and you see all of this destruction happening on the earth, why is there something that's like, this is not right? Because the story of the sacred text tells us that, well, this is where we come from. We're all connected. The first thing we're invited to do is to be like God and make something with our hands from the dirt, from the soil, as an act of worship. You see, this is the story that we're invited to see, to see that we are all connected, In the book of Job, the poet writes these words I am the same as you in God's sight. I too am a piece of clay. I'm the same as you in God's sight. I too am a piece of clay. See, there's moments when we see union, when we see unity, when we see connection, and something in us is like this, this makes sense. Because this is the story that we've been given. This is a story that's been told to us. And I suppose the question that I just want to leave us with this morning is like, what story are you telling? What story do you trust? What story orients you to the gods, to God, to the mystery, to the life that is in and through all things? You see, it's interesting that in the Christian tradition, the Franciscans have long said that Jesus is fully human and fully God, that Jesus is the union of divine and human, which is the beginning for them of the good news. In the Orthodox tradition, they say, and this is where we're all heading, back to union with God. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, puts it this way, that God is making one new humanity out of the two. In the book of Revelation, John talks about God coming here and dwelling among us and that there are a whole mess of people, all of whom have a renewed understanding of the connection between us and God and one another that's always existed. What story do you trust? What story are you telling? Before you answer that question, maybe there's another question That would be more helpful to consider. What does the story that you trust in produce? What does the story that you tell create in yourself and in others? Does the story that you are telling that you trust in, does it cultivate a theology of separation and division and enmity and violence and placating the angry gods? Or does the story that you trust in and the story that you're telling cultivate the beauty that God has invited us into and that God longs for of connection, of wholeness, of peace, of integration? I suppose if you can answer the second question, you'll have a greater understanding of what story you trust in. Because we all trust in a story. The question is, Which one? Let's pray together. God, may we be those who look around the world in which we live, who look into the face of another human being, who look at the beauty of the world that we have the privilege of inhabiting and recognize that this all reflects the longing of your heart. May this longing that comes from you take root in us so that we may be those who cultivate your goodness, your love, your beauty, your hope in this world of ours. Cause us to trust the story you are telling. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus and all my friends said,